you know, we noticed some red flags with her behavior. Was telling her that he didn't not like her hanging out with her other friends. He takes her phone to go through her phone, and then he demands that she gives him her password. Well, he comes into the the house, and he immediately strikes her in the temple of her head. They didn't tell their parents or call the cops. We have to continue to tell the story. We have to continue to speak to anyone that will hear us. I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and actual survivors themselves. Carla Clanagan and I met years ago through domestic violence-related events at both Cabrini University and the Laurel House Domestic Violence Agency, both are near Philadelphia. Besides her work in domestic violence, Carla is also the founder of In His Eyes, an organization committed to helping women labeled as ex-offenders. For the purposes of this episode of When Dating Hurts, we will use the paradigm of males and females in dating relationships. It needs to be said that dating abuse and violence happens equally in every possible kind of relationship. Carla, welcome to the When Dating Hurts podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me this morning. Yes, thanks for thanks for slipping us in here. I know you have a whole lot going on and you know, you've had many years of helping women when you needed to stop and come to the assistance of Mackenzie. This was a whole new thing. And she had been attacked by a young man she knew. So that we just get to know her a little bit, how would you describe Mackenzie around the time of the incident? At the time of the incident, Mackenzie was a senior in high school. She was a regular, thriving teenager. She was active in school. She had a lot of friends, um, so she knew everyone. She was well-liked by her teachers and the parents of her friends and other kids. And she was active in sports, and she was a responsible kid at home. I have two children, and Mackenzie is the responsible child. All right. All right. All right. How would you describe your daughter's relationship with the guy who did this, who, who caused this, this tragedy? Well, this is the interesting part. Um, according to Mackenzie, it was teenage love. Um, it was a young kid who was super popular and she was enjoying her time with him. We, as the parents, did not actually know that she was in this relationship until right before the incident happened. We had met him on two occasions, and on both of those occasions, Mackenzie um, was kind of shy with it in the introduction. Yeah, I mean, we didn't know him very well. We found out that she was dating a kid, and immediately we wanted to meet him. But again, that was two weeks before the incident. So do you have a sense in the in the beginning there what attracted her to him so oh, much? Oh, most definitely. Um, even just seeing the kid, he was this cute, light-skinned, curly-haired um, young boy, 
and he had a lot of attention from all of the girls from all of the local school districts. He was from another neighborhood, so he was like, you know, the attractive, curly head, light-skinned kid that was like the bad boy. He had several tattoos. Um, he was a her total opposite. So I'm sure, and I've heard her speak enough times to know that that's what attracted her to him. The first real indication there could be trouble was real trouble. Yes. You know, we noticed some red flags with her behavior. So tell us about that. Her her time frames were off. Again, Mackenzie was the responsible kid. So she would say what, you know, she was doing and actually do it. Um, when it comes to like, I'm driving here or I'm driving there, I'm going to meet my friend, I'm going, you know, to the mall. But there was some, her time frames were a little off. I'd call her and she'd say, I was on my way home, but it would take a little bit longer to get home. I would call her and she would say, oh, I'm dropping, you know, my friend off at her house and then I'll be home. And again, that time frame was just, just a little bit off and I noticed it. And then in school, she was playing, she was, she threw the uh, javelin and for track and she was making the finals or the, you know, whatever the next level was. And she was doing really well and the reports were really good. Then all of a sudden she comes home to say, oh, I didn't make it. Mm. And so those small red flags had my husband and I questioned her a lot. Um, and she always had an answer. And again, because she was the responsible kid, we did not dig further into those things. So in some of these cases, she was playing with the truth, therefore. Yes, she definitely okay. was. I mean, it wasn't that she was going through some some uh, mental situation and just kind of lost track of time or just couldn't, I don't know, couldn't couldn't have estimated 20 minutes was 20 minutes and it became an hour. It wasn't that. She, she was actually kind of uh, working the story, I guess, really to spend more time with him. Exactly. And because he did not live in this local area, she needed that time. So, yes, yeah, she was dropping off a friend, but he lived in a, another town. And so that's that's the information that we, of course, found out later, but it all made sense because he lived in another town. So her 20 minutes off was because of that. So this is going along for a couple of weeks. And then tell us about what actually happened that brought this to brought it to a head. So apparently two weeks prior to the incident, she was at the mall with him and he was telling her that he did not like her hanging out with her other friends. He wanted more of her time and that he wanted her to spend all of the time with him. And she was telling him, well, I have a bunch of other friends. I enjoy hanging out with my other friends. What's the big deal? At that time, we have now learned that he snatched her phone out of her hand. And she, because of the, all the work that I do, she was aware of the red flags. Okay, so he wants more of her time, which could sound like a good thing, but we know it's not sometimes. And he wants all of her time. So now we're talking about isolation, right? Yes. Obviously. But tell me now, you say, so on one occasion, he then takes her phone. Now, does he take it and keep it? Does he just take it to demonstrate what he means or what's going on with the phone? He takes her phone to go through her phone, and then he demands that she gives him her password. Okay, wow. Yeah, that's, a cla she, that's classic stuff. Right. Classic. She recognized that to be a sign that 
wasn't a good sign. Now, does she know that already? She does know that already because I have drilled it into her head what a healthy relationship looks like. Right. Which but is, I mean, she, but she knows it now. Did she know it when the phone was taken away? Yes. Oh, she did I, know. Okay. She did know because at that time she then broke up with him and said, it's too much. The relationship is too much. The demands are too much. She enjoys hanging out with her friends and it's probably best that they just, you know, break up for a while or like take some time apart. So, so she knows that somebody taking your phone and going through it or give me your password. She already knew those things were happening. So what did she do then? So she called it off or she, she told him they needed some time apart. He didn't understand why she would say that. She was the driver. She had a car and he didn't. So she took him home. And that was, what, a week or two before the incident? Apparently for the next two weeks, he began to continue to call her and continue to pressure her to see him and just kind of like say, we can't be apart. You know, we're together. I'm sorry. Don't leave me, that type of thing. So they eventually are together, obviously. So what was that? Yes. So they were together, you know, she continued the relationship, but with less time, apparently she used her dad and I as an excuse saying, my parents said, I can't drive. You know, I have to do this for my parents. Um, I can't come pick you up today. I can't pick you up from work. So she used us as an excuse to not spend as much time with him. And how did he, and how'd that work for him? uh, I don't think that worked very well for him because the night of the incident, I received a message on my Facebook uh, messenger from him. Now, mind you, him and I had never had a relationship or, or really spoken except for the two times that we had met him. So I got a Facebook message from him the night she was out with some friends asking me, is she okay? Because she was not returning his calls. Okay. Now, did you know about the the phone and the password and all these types of things at this point? We did not. Okay. So she hadn't shared that. Okay. Okay. So she had not shared so that. you just think this is this relationship and it's having its moments and you're kind of like uh, unaware of what's going on. So, so then what happens? I mean, she, she is somewhere he's there. What happens? So she was out with some friends. Apparently they were going to another friend's place, a get together. Um, I get this Facebook message, which alarmed me. So I called her to say, Hey, what's going on? You know, this guy, this kid messaged me and she said, Oh, I'm not sure what he's talking about. I'm fine. I'm just ignoring his calls. I said, okay, make sure you're okay. Was that the truth or not? That was the truth, which is why he, he was trying to find out whether she was home or whether she was out. He wanted to know where to look, right? Yes. And he did just that. So she's with her friends. How does he catch up with them? She's with her friends. They're at a a get together with a bunch of other kids. And one of his friends was at the same location. And that friend of his called him to say that Mackenzie was there. Okay. Oh, I see. So he comes over. Then what happens? Well, he comes into the, the house and he immediately charges after her. When she tells the story now, she had this gut feeling that something was wrong. And she was with a, a male friend of hers and some other girlfriends. One of her best friends is a, is a guy named Christian. And Christian noticed that her, her continence had changed. 
And he said, hey, if you don't want to be here, we can leave. Because he was also aware of the other kid. Mm -hmm. Um, And she said, okay, we can leave in a few minutes. They never got a chance to leave. So he comes charging across the room. He has a gun and he immediately strikes her in the temple of her head with the gun in his hand and she falls to the ground. The information that I had received after the fact was she jumps up um, with blood all over her head, runs into the bathroom. Her friends run in there with her and they lock her in the bathroom. This kid charges into the bathroom, kicks the door in and begins to pistol whip her and hit her with a, a closed fist multiple times. Someone screams that someone, I guess like the cops are coming or someone's coming and all of the kids run out of the, out of the room. Mm -hmm. Out of the house, I imagine. Yeah. They run out of the house down, you know, into out outside. Sure. And this kid follows her, chases after her. And when her and her friends jump in her other friend's car, this kid jumps in with them with the gun pointed at Mackenzie. Oh my God. And so technically he has now kidnapped her and forces her friend to drive them back to his house. What a, what a complete nightmare. So now you have, yes. Now you have him in the car with the gun pointed at Mackenzie, her friend driving and her other two girlfriends in the, in the back seat with this kid with the gun. So they go to his house. They head towards his house. Her friend Christian is trying to figure out how do I get us out of this situation? So near the kid's house, the Christian stops the car and he jumps out. This gives the girls time to jump out and run away. Mm. The kid is still holding Mackenzie at gunpoint, forces her out of the car and tells them we'll walk the rest of the way. Oh my God. Which it saved her life. Well, I mean, at the time she didn't know it, but it, Christian then was able to drive away, call the cops, call his mother, and call me. Unbelievable. What a hero. Right. Wow. That is just, uh, and this, and so what, all these people, they're what, junior, senior in high school? They're all juniors and seniors in high school. So he's still got her and he's heading towards his house. I guess he gets there, right? Yes. On the way, he stops and knocks her to the ground and blames her for all of these things happening. And he then holds the gun to her head. At that point, she gives up and she says, if you want to shoot me, then shoot me now because I can't do this anymore. Mm. He kicks her a few times, grabs her to pull her up and drags her to walk back to his house. So she gets into the house. The sisters are yelling at him and screaming, what did you do? What did you do to her? What did you do? They give her a cloth for her face. No one knows where the gun is at this point. And right at this time, I called her cell phone. And when I called her cell phone, because of the information I had shared with her about domestic violence, and actually after hearing you speak, she knew to make up a story. And she knew that I would want her to be on speakerphone so that he would, you know, the abuser would feel safe as if her story was the true story that she was telling. And what story did she tell? She said that some girls beat her up at the party, you know, at the gathering, at the party with the friends. Oh, good. And she got beat up by the girls and that she probably should see a doctor. Wow. That's, a, that's amazing. So, so at this point, are the police getting closer? The police are getting closer and we are getting closer. 
We had also called the cops to let them know that we were headed there as well and making sure that they would meet us there. And we all pulled up on the corner of the street at the same time. My husband and I directed the police to the house because we didn't know the address, but I knew the house. Oh, wow. Okay. Boy, that's fortunate, isn't it? It is very, very fortunate. I mean, considering you really didn't know this guy very long and you had that going for you. That's amazing. Yes. I'm that mom. I'm, I'm a super investigator. <laughs> well, it's a darn good thing. Wow. Yeah. So also they, so the, I imagine the police take the lead and going to the door. Does this guy, does this guy give himself um, up at some point? He doesn't. What happens is because they, we had shared with them that he had a gun, they, the scary part was they didn't want him to then hurt her because the police were outside. So they arrived silently without their sirens on. I called her cell phone to say, Hey, mom and dad are outside. Let's, you know, come on out so we can take you to the hospital and get your injuries checked out. Right. Good. And she, she, she said, okay, but it was a while before I had to call three times before he let her out of the house. So she came out by herself. She came out by herself and my husband lost it completely. Mm. She was not recognizable and blood was everywhere. Yeah, I'm so sorry. That's just horrific. That is so bad. But so you are at that point are in the car and you're heading towards the hospital and the police come and arrest him, right? Yes. My husband got in the ambulance with her and I stayed back with the police just to, um, just to see him get arrested. Mm-hmm. and. They couldn't get him out of the house, and they suggested that I leave because if he had a gun and came out shooting, then I was in danger. And so I then jumped in our car and met my husband, her, and the ambulance at the hospital. That is a night that nobody will ever forget. Oh, my God. Well, never. So she goes to the hospital. She's probably in there for a while, right? She is in the hospital bed. She's getting checked out by all of the doctors and nurses are coming in and out. My husband and I are there. The police show up at the hospital to then get a statement from her and to update us on what the plan was for him. These are police. These are detectives. Who are they? They are detectives and the police officers who Okay. Same people you saw the night before. Okay. Yes. So they got her statement at that point. That's good. And so she was in the hospital a couple days? No, she, they actually arrived at the hospital probably within the hour after we arrived there. So she left out of the hospital that next morning. Okay. Her injuries, they wanted, because she was so young, it played in her favor because she had broken bones on the complete left side of her face from her forehead to mm. her jaw mm-hmm. or like her chin. They felt like as long as the eye was intact, she should just go home and follow up with some some of the, um, well, a lot of surgeons and dermatologists and neurologists. Now, what was the condition of her eye from all this? They weren't sure if she was going to see out of it. At the, you know, at the time, it was completely closed shut. Okay. But all of the CAT scans and MRIs of her head showed that the the actual eye socket was intact um, and hanging on. So that's why we needed to have the further appointments with um, 
a few specialists. As time wore on, could she use that eye? Um, yeah. So, you know, after many, many surgeon appointments and doctor's appointments, she was told that she would probably not regain full eyesight in that eye. And she has not since then. Um, but that they did not have to do surgery on any parts of her face. Her cheek was broken. You know, her jaw was broken. Her eye um, socket was damaged. Her eye was damaged. Her nose was broken. She had fractures from her forehead to her chin. So she, at this point, is is home and she has so many things to do, so much of her recovery. In the meantime, the police have him. Now, eventually, he's he's in court or there's some kind of legal proceedings taking place, Correct. right? So he was charged as an adult that night. And the first step was to meet in district court to see if the charges would actually hold up in court. Uh, that's a, is that a preliminary hearing, in other words? Yes. Okay. Okay. So obviously these charges would hold up, right? They did hold up. He had multiple charges. Um, among them was kidnapping, assault and battery, assault with a deadly weapon, a gun charge, and they all held over for court. Okay. So... Time passes, I would imagine, and the next step, he's in court, or is this a formal arraignment? What happens next? So we had to go for, you know, the formal arraignment, the arraignment, and then the court proceedings started. So he had criminal charges against him, and we had a lot of court dates. Is this like, is this at this point in trial mode, like a jury trial or bench trial? It was in bench trial mode. And so okay. it was just a matter of her working with the DAs, because at this point, it's the Commonwealth against him. Yes, of course. Is, is she actually in the courtroom with him, or is she doing depositions? We are doing all of those things. So because she is then considered the victim and a witness, we were always held up in a small room by the district attorneys, kind of like hidden away until it was her time to testify in court. But this went on for months and months. Like we were in the court process for over a year. How many times do you think you were in court? Oh, my Lord. We were in court, I would say, at least eight times. Oh, um, wow. There were many days when we sat up in the room, um, in the like the witness room, for an entire day from 8 a.m. until 5 p.m., and she still didn't testify because something else came up in the courtroom, and they had to put us off for another day. So there were times when we sat there all day long anticipating her going to speak and it didn't happen. Do you think those were motions made by the defense? I think that that delayed everything. Yes, I think there was just a lot of things happening in that courtroom with his case. We also had my husband had to testify, I had to testify, she had to testify, and because we were all kind of witnesses, we could not be in the room when she testified. Yes, so right. So there was a lot right. of juggling of the, of who would testify first so she can have support. I guess her friends were in there too, right? They yes. had to be. Her friends were, well, her male friend was in there. The girls who ran out of the car gave a statement, but they're, they gave false statements. Oh, why would that be? Um, Apparently they were covering for the whole situation. They were covering for him. They didn't want any parts of it. When they ran and went home, they didn't tell their parents or call the cops. Their parents did not know what had happened the night before until I called them 
two days later to tell them that this happened and we needed them in court. Okay. They're just covering for themselves, obviously. Yes. So while this is going on over the course of all these months, is your daughter back in school or is this guy in school? Where, where What's going on with that? So he's in jail. He was held in adult jail at the time. And my daughter, she missed, it was senior year. She missed two and a half months of school just because it took her a while to be able to have that eye open up and heal a little bit, both emotionally and physically. Okay. So what is the upshot of it all? What kinds of decisions were made by the law? Where are you now? So the court process was very long and drooling, and we were then faced with the decision to allow his case to go to juvenile court down from the adult court. And as a family, we made the decision to agree to that. And the reason why we agreed to it is because we did not want this to happen to another girl. And we felt that the juvenile courts and the juvenile system would help him more than the adult jail would. We felt that he would get the anger management classes, the mental health assessments, um, his education, all of those things would be beneficial to him to hopefully not then do this again to someone else. So at this point, this has happened to our daughter and we are now trying to think ahead and how can we help someone else not have to go through this? So what did they wind up deciding about him? He ended up getting state juvenile time for, in, in the juvenile system, it's a little different. So like you get sentenced to a time frame, but you have all of these, uh, this criteria that you have to meet. So he needed anger management. He needed certain assessments. He needed mental health evaluations. And so he ended up in state juvenile facility, like state juvenile jail for a year and a half added to the six months that he was already locked up during the court case. So where are you now with with his situation? I mean, is he back? I guess he's back in the world. I hope a productive person, maybe he's well, learned from this. He is definitely back in the world. In the very beginning, when everything was over, I think he went to a local college, a local tech school or something and played sports there. I'm not sure how that panned out for him, but recently we were made aware that he is around and I don't know if he has changed, but I do know that he has not forgotten her. So he's been trying to contact her. We've had some third party contact throughout these couple years. And most recently um, he's been posting about her on social media, which is a violation of the protection from abuse. So when he does this, I mean, he actually comes out and says her name and... He doesn't. He mentions, he calls her by her first initial, the letter M, or he'll say some direct quotes, like he'll he'll post direct quotes that she has said. Now, do you think this is kind of uh, extended abuse or is this, this his way of uh, trying to manipulate this relationship back into coming together again? I think it's his way of manipulating the relationship to come back again, like... I don't think he sees it as abuse or uh, as a bad thing. I think he sees it as he's trying to put it out into the atmosphere, into the, you know, into the world that he still cares for her and wants her to be with him. We see it as manipulation and abuse. She sees it as abuse. Right. Because unfortunately, 
all it leads to is the next chapter in in a horror story with him. I mean, you all know that. Yes, definitely. We definitely do. She has since moved on. She was able to graduate on time because she thankfully had a good student record. So she graduated on time and she went off to college. So she's at college now? She is. I mean, she's virtual at home now, which she does not like. Um, She had to give up her apartment to come home. Um, and, And on top of that, though, I think more importantly is her college is like five and a half, six hours away from home. Sure. And sure. she feels safe there. If there is such a thing, right? If there is such a thing as safe. Right, right. So right. so Carla, you've done so many things. I mean, that's a whole other podcast, all the things you've been doing to help women in so many ways. Were you already though why were you focused on domestic violence even before this happened to Mackenzie? Um, the work that I do through my nonprofit in his eyes outreach takes me into the jail to work with the women. And when I started doing this back in 2007, I realized that every single woman in that jail that I've ever come in contact with has some sort of abuse in their background, from child abuse to relationship abuse, physical, verbal, and emotional abuse inflicted on them by some some partner. So it's, it's the cliche cycle of the abuser. They kind of have it happen to them and eventually they turn around and commit crimes, do something to somebody else. Yes. Yeah. That's amazing what you do. I was reading about it and boy, you know, so many people can, can think of great things that they can do in the world and you are, and have been doing it. I mean, I, I knew some of these things and I was reading up before this and I, and the more I read, the more I saw that you had done. I mean, you just go, go, go. I see why you've, I, I actually ran into a whole section of awards that you have won and I wasn't the least bit surprised. I was thinking at some point, someone ought to, somebody ought to give you something that with your picture in the center, with the most glorious things that they could say to pat you on the back. And then I realized, oh, she's got a whole trophy <laughs> case of these things. God bless you. That's great. Thank you. It's very yeah. humbling. Um, you know, For me, I feel like this is what God has called me to. I'm a nurse by education, and I would have never imagined myself doing the work that I do. Not, not in the, not ever. Yes, but you're you are a giver, and I just think that is wonderful. My daughter was murdered in 2005 by her ex-boyfriend, and no, time doesn't heal all wounds. Since those dark days, I have given over 100 speeches and interviews. To be able to dispense such life-saving information, I needed to do a lot of research. Now it's all in one place. My daughter's story and our family's journey is now available in a book entitled When Dating Hurts, available only on Amazon in paperback and ebook. If you have a child, a family member, or a friend between 16 and 24 years of age, I suggest you give When Dating Hurts a read. The information in this book has already saved lives. Yes, Mackenzie and I both read it. I think the book is, it has, it's a book that is needed. It is a book that I believe every parent should buy and read and share with their circle of people. Like I said, 
I believe, and I don't know if you remember, but right after the incident, I was at home and I think I reached out to you by email. Yes, you did. Yeah, I remember that. I was, it was one evening I saw that email. Yes. I was compelled to call you or reach out to you and let you know that because of your talk at Cabrini in 2015, my daughter knew what to do to stay alive. And I was able to help her with that. And, you know, I, I had to reach out to you. So your book is needed. Every parent needs to hear from you. They need to hear our stories. They need to read your book and not just read it. They then need to have the conversation with their girls, with their boys, with their children, with their neighbors. The converse, we have to break the stigma and have the conversation. It's life-saving. Yes, the communication. You know, it's awareness, it's education, it's communication. People need to talk about it. And and one of the, you know, there are so many obstacles to having that talk because there are people, even in the county that I live in here in Maryland, that my wife, maybe I have started to get into this conversation about, you know, we should give a talk or we should get a group together. And the resistance oftentimes from coming back at us is, well, you know, I mean, that would be great and everything, but that type of thing doesn't really happen around here. I mean, that's more of a depressed area, inner city issue. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I can get a group. I don't see us pulling that together. What you're saying is so absolutely true. We are a two parent household. We live in the suburbs. We have a dog and a cat. We have two children who are one graduated from college. Mackenzie is now in college. My husband is a military veteran and I'm college educated. And this happened to us. We're active. We're in a good school district. We have great neighbors. We're in the suburbs. We live in a beautiful home. It happens everywhere. The problem is parents are not paying attention and kids are not sharing the information for fear of being in trouble. That's right. That's exactly right. And you're, you're right. I mean, if something like this is happening to somebody, to, to a, a young woman or even a young man, if, if he's on the receiving end of it, may talk to their friends, but they're probably not going to talk with their parents because their parents are going to come down on them pretty hard and they're going to say, well, you shouldn't be around these people. And they're not going to understand it. They don't have the background in it like you and I do. And a lot of people do have it, but most people don't. Again, you know, they, they don't they don't know how to sort that mail. You know, they, they don't know when they are handed this kind of information. Again, they don't think it can happen. They think they're doing everything right. They live in a good area. They, everything is safe and sound. I mean, I've met people where I would say that they almost act like talking about it might make it happen. You know, if you've had something like this happen to you, that you become a pariah and they don't really want to hear about that because that happened over right, there and right. nothing happened here. And let's talk about sports. You know, let's do, let's do something else. Yeah. One of the things I'm so very grateful for is that our school district, the counselor who assisted Mackenzie in returning back to school, invited her to come speak to the entire student body and staff. Great. That's what's needed. Yep. They shut the school down. I mean, you know, not shut it down, but they stopped all of the class movement. They invited a small group of students into the library and the other students were in their classroom watching on the audiovisual screens in the classrooms. Oh, great. And she was able to 
tell her story and then talk about the risks factors, talk about the vulnerabilities, talk about the warning signs, um, right. and then answer questions. That's absolutely what's needed. And you know, you're not going to touch everybody. You're, you're not going to get everybody to say, wow, okay, you know, I, I can see that possibly happening. You're not going to get a, a large percentage. But the thing that I've seen before and after every speech, somebody will come up and tell me their particular mm -hmm. story. The, and it could be it could be a freshman in high school, and it could be a woman who seemed to be in her fifties or sixties at some some big company, big big corporate setup. You know, a great big conference room with hundreds of people. Somebody will kind of come up by the podium afterwards. One woman came up to me and said that she had been in an abusive marriage for over thirty years, and that only two or three people know about it. Nobody here at work knows about it, and I'm sharing it with you because I know that you would understand what I'm talking about. And I just made it clear to her. I said, you have to, you have to figure out a way to get away from that. I mean, you just heard my story up here. You have to find some way to get away from it. One of the things about what you do, what Mackenzie does, what I do is, is you inform people, but you also never know when someone in that group is at the tipping point yeah. where just hearing about it one more time might make them get to that place where they bottom out and say, you know what? That's it. Exactly. I'm done. I'm gone. Exactly. You know, you just hope that. And Bill, that's why we can't stop. You, me, Mackenzie, we have to continue to tell the story. We have to continue to speak to anyone that will hear us. And that's why people need to buy your book. That's why they need to read the book and share the book. It gives them the opportunity to hear your story in the privacy of their own home or wherever they're reading the book at so that they can then reflect on what's happening in their own lives or what are they like, what have they missed any signs with their own children? Carla, is there anything that I didn't ask you about or we didn't talk about you want to bring up? Um, I think our message is just always, always to have open communication with your children it is very hard sometimes. Sometimes they say things we don't want to hear, but we cannot let them push us away. We have to pay attention. We have to be better parents by getting to know their friends and being more influential in what they do and where they go. And that's not to blame us as parents, but it's to help us build a better relationship with our children so that when these things do happen, when the first incident does happen, when the first snatching of the phone or the pushing or the telling our children, our girls what to wear, that they will come back to us and say, hey, you know what he said to me? You know what he did? What do you think about that? Because from what we're hearing from young girls is that they don't want to get in trouble by their parents. Bill, a big thing for us was after the incident, the kid was reaching out to my daughter from jail, and she did not know how to deny that phone call from jail. And she was scared to deny his phone call, and she was scared to tell us that it was happening. My goodness. This is all after the beating, all after he tried to kill her. Did she? What, what did she do about that? Did she take the call? Yep, she was taking the call. She had taken two or three of them. I only found out because of court. It was brought up in court that she took his calls. Oh, my. And so when we did find out, I went to her and had a conversation. I said, listen, 
I explained to her why she couldn't take his calls anymore. And I explained to her more about manipulation and power and control. And then I also let her know that I loved her and that I was not mad at her for taking his calls. This is a 17 year old girl whose heart is saying, that's your boyfriend and he loves you. And he called you to say he's sorry. What is a 17 year old girl going to do with those emotions when we know grown women in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s don't know what to do with that? And so I gave her the space to say, it's okay. I'm going to walk you through this. You don't have to take his calls. Your heart is going to be with him until it's not. And I'm here to walk through it with you until you're over it. But your point was zero tolerance. Don't take the call too, zero, right? Oh, listen, Bill. Zero tolerance. It's it's we laugh about it now, but my daughter, when she left out that night to go to the party with the friends, she had told me that she was going um, to the like they were going bowling. And so after the incident and after she graduated from high school, I then put her on punishment and she was on punishment the summer before college started. <laughs> oh, gee. Wow. You are you're tough. You're. You're tough. You you bring because it. Because you broke a family <laughs> rule, right? You broke a rule. You said you were going one place and not the other. This had nothing to do with the beating or the abuse. This has to do with you still broke a rule and there are consequences to that. Good for you. Wow. <laughs> and by the way, you're in trouble. <laughs> Carla, I'd like to thank you so much for joining the When Dating Hurts podcast today. And you have told us so much. You've been so open. You are already bringing your A-game to people in your area through In His Eyes, that organization. You were already deeply vested in domestic violence, understanding what it was and how to give out the messages. Then this horrible thing came your way. But at least, unlike most people, you, you recognized it for what it was. You've been a great coach with your daughter. Your daughter's story is absolutely amazing and you know, I'm I'm glad that she's on the other side of it. I I'm sad about some of the physical issues and emotional issues she's had to deal with, but I just want to thank you so much for stopping and and talking with us. And I think that that everybody will get so much out of this, and it'll be a safer safer world thanks to you. Really. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for allowing me to share our story. I really appreciate it. And go get the book. <laughs> thank you very much. You are very welcome, and, and I'm sure I'll be seeing you soon. Thank you very much. One in three women will suffer serious physical violence in an intimate partner relationship. It typically happens between the ages of 16 and 24, but can happen at any age. We lost our daughter to dating violence, but if we had read a book like When Dating Hurts back then, we believe things would have turned out differently. Do your daughter a favor. Do your family a favor. Dating violence is real. Believe me, I know. Read When Dating Hurts, then pass a copy to someone who needs to see it. When it comes to something as insidious as dating violence, there are no do-overs. <laughs>